Hello, and welcome to the Tips of the Iceberg podcast for 2022. I'm Amy Souter, editor of Produce Market Guide, PMG for short, and retail editor for The Packer, two trade publications in the fresh produce industry. Thanks so much for joining us in this new year. In this episode, The Packer editor Tom Karst and I chat with Dan O'Connell, Food Mix Marketing Communications CEO, on his company's food industry predictions. For our purposes, we focused on four trends that affect the produce industry directly. And yes, a lot of predictions don't pan out the way we expect. Hello, late 2019 predictions for 2020. But there's 30 years of experience behind this company, plus some proprietary research that gathered a lot of data. Let's hear it from Dan. Hi, I'm Amy Souter, the retail editor of The Packer and editor of Produce Market Guide, or PMG. And I we have here with us Tom Kars, the editor of The Packer. And we have Dan O'Connell, the CEO and founder of Food Mix Marketing Communications, the full-service food marketing agency with B2B and B2C with a um, clients and uh, with a lot of focus on produce and you're based in Chicago. Is, is that correct, Dan? Correct. Yes. Thank you. I uh, saw that you, your company did um, uh, 2022 predicted food trends and that a lot of them can apply to the fresh produce industry and especially at retail. So um, yeah, we could talk a like go dive right into that if you want, or if you would like sure. to share a little bit about your company, that would sure. be fine too. Okay. Well, let's give you a quick tour of food mix. And uh, we are a full service uh, food agency. Um, we really specialize in creating and uh, telling brand stories. And that is really a, a collaboration with our clients to bring kind of their authentic truths and their real stories out and then uh, bring them to life creatively and through our communications effort. Um, this year, as we looked at our um, annual predictions, um, we wanted to do two things. Um, one, have a little bit of fun with them, so we're, we're maybe a bit tongue-in-cheek. Uh, but the second was really draw from some proprietary research that we conducted in uh, 2021. Um, and it was really started at a view of consumers' relationship with the perimeter of the store, we honed into uh, the produce department specifically, and then we really went deep into produce um, brands and really under the question for the produce industry of to brand or not to brand. Um, and the executive summary of that, everything I just said, um, is it is clear there is a huge opportunity as we go into 2022 and beyond for the produce industry uh, to strengthen its brand marketing presence. They have a tremendous advantage um, and a lot of our uh, research really quantified um, what the value of creating brands within the produce industry could be. Um, and then a lot of that information is, as I, as I said, cascaded into our predictions. So there are four specific predictions that we have that I think directly affect our produce clients and our produce friends. And I'd be happy to kind of give you our view of each one of those four um, as we see it. Yes, dive right in. So let's first start with, you know, the simple fact is, there's a lot of conversation going on in the food industry about plant-based right now. And it's a good time to remind 
um, ourselves in the produce industry that the first plant-based meal was actually an apple. Um, and um, if you really think about um, what's going on right now in the, in, in, in the food culture is the simple fact that people are trying to better understand what they're eating um, and are extremely concerned holistically about health and wellness. And the produce industry um, is waiting for, for uh, them as they figure it out. So, you know, what we saw under this, this, this study was a pretty remarkable statistic in that 68% of consumers were willing to pay a premium for their preferred branded produce product. That's, that's pretty remarkable. Um, hmm. And in fact, when we dove deeper into the produce industry's heaviest users, those who spent 25 bucks or more a week on gross uh, produce, um, those with uh, kids in the household, those who just felt branded produce was important in their lives, um, those who really valued sustainability. When you look at those subsets, their affinity for per, their per preference for branded produce uh, went up dramatically from 68%. So we have a large um, swatch of American consumers, and these are shoppers. We shop the grocery store, the perimeter, and buy produce, um, which, by the way, was about 98% of our sample. So we didn't have to eliminate a lot of people. This is a core produce industry's consumer. So they're, they're willing to pay more for brands. And so the question becomes, well, what's standing in the produce industry's way? And it really is, um, it was really an interesting exploration because unlike other categories we, we've studied, um, there was less brand affinity within produce than there are in other categories, which is more of a reflection of the lack of branding or the state of branding in produce than it is a lack of affinity or interest. And the simple fact is when you ask people what their favorite produce brands are, they typically can come up with one or two. And quite often those are the legacy brands, the ones that have been around since we were all kids. Um, Although there's a huge list of favorite produce brands, there aren't big numbers behind any brand except for those legacy brands, the Sunkiss, the Dulles, the Del Montes, uh, which is interesting because they can't seem to manage to create a list. So when you ask them their favorite produce brands, you get one or two. When you take it to the next level, which ones you really love, which ones you really have that affinity for, which ones can't you live without. And when we talk about brand love, we're talking about creating advocates, which one might you advocate for? Um, that number is, is solid, but it pales in comparison to other categories. So it's something like 54% of consumers state they love a produce brand, where if you look in other categories, it's 80, 90, 95%. So, um, where we're at right now in branding is there's there is a interest to pay more. There is a, a preference for branded. There is also a halo around branded. Um, once when consumers talk about produce and the overall perimeter of the store, they don't rate produce as really high in taste and craveability and kind of uh, sensory related attributes. 
um, healthy, uh, wholesome, you know, clean, sustainable, all these other very important attributes, produce scores very well. But I'm in, in the core, produce and taste associations are fairly weak until they start talking about their brand, that, that favorite or preferred brand. Then all of a sudden, the sensory um, scores and ratings go up dramatically. So as they find the brand, as it becomes a favorite, as they find, fall in love with the brand, then everything, they rate everything, a halo effect. It, it, it's just seen in a better light. So what's standing in the industry's way of creating more brands um, is really the big question we have. One is a boardroom discussion about the value of branding and the return on investment. You know, to brand or not to brand, are we going to make enough money to cover this investment? Um, what's the ROI going to be? And one of the areas we queried in the study was really a price elasticity exercise in which we demonstrated that consumers were, were willing to pay 6 to 10% more for their preferred brand of produce. So there is quite strong evidence that if you build it and you tell the story, that the consumers will pay a premium for it. The biggest challenge for those who have achieved that status becomes availability. It's available in some stores. It's not available in others. You know, seasonality, all those other produce, you know, dynamics that we face as an industry um, may stand in the way. But the simple fact is um, they're willing to pay more. They're willing to pay 6 to 10% more. You know, there is a halo as they understand your story um, and makes that really strong connection. The other, the other, go ahead. I just had a quick question. It's very interesting research, and that is that's I can see how the consumers would, you know, have a preference, have a familiarity with the brand. How does that translate to the buyer side, say the retail organization itself? Do they also have that preference, and are they willing to pay a little bit more for a legacy brand or, or what have you, a premium brand, whether it be in berries or what have you? Uh, what, how does that translate from consumer up to the, the buying organization? Yeah, I guess there's two answers to it. And the first is, you know, one of the one of the challenges uh, the produce uh, growers have in this conversation of two brand and not two brand is a stated concern about competing with retail and, and private label brands and store brands. Mm -hmm. And quite frankly, um, the data was really clear there in that the, the, the reality is, is that the produce, the, the grower brand, national or regional, um, has a very important story that the retailer doesn't have, which is really that farm to table story. And that matters dramatically. Mm -hmm. So one of the, you know, we're not suggesting retail brands don't have a, 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 a role, but the reality is, is what's going to create a favorite and what's going to create a love brand, particularly in produce, is linking back to that journey. And that's really critical. And that's unique to the produce growers. Now, the other side of this for everybody to benefit, um, which is another to us really exciting piece of insight, is um, linking, linking back to our perimeter study. You know, consumers generally rate the food at the perimeter of the store as mediocre, you know, it's high in convenience. It, 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 it does a lot of wonderful things. But when you get down to that 
taste that 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 experience that, that that sensory experience they want more they want more premium they want they want to they want they're willing to pay for value added they're willing to pay for innovation they're willing to pay for intrigue excitement discovery and so one of the things we've learned there is a clear opportunity not just to brand overall in the perimeter specifically in produce but there's a void there's a lot of voids by the way and that's the the biggest thing standing in the way of produce branding adding value but there's also an opportunity at the high end of the market and whether that's flavor infused or further processed or added with other ingredients or wherever the industry's imagination take takes it we believe there is strong evidence to suggest that if you build it, if you build a premium offering, something that adds value, adds convenience, adds flavor, taste, intrigue, that the consumers are actually waiting for it. So not only is there an opportunity to brand, but there's an opportunity to start. Um, so for everybody, retailers or growers, get me 6 to 10% higher margin on a branded item versus a bulk bin item that's intriguing to both sides of the equation right and the second is let's work together to figure out what that premium offering may be within our environment within our retail environment because the consumers are likely to accept that too so the path to branding um, is adding value collaborating with a retailer to understand that there's a tremendous unmet needs out there and there's margins to be had and then really taking a look down the road is how can we premiumize uh, this category or certain entries? And we're actually working with some clients um, presently today and helping them drive innovation. How do we make X commodity more approachable to the consumer, more enjoyable and more exciting? We had a couple other one, quick ones if we have a minute or two. Um, the other uh, uh, Prediction we had was called what's in it for me and the year 2022 we'll see consumers wondering really what's in it for me when it comes to sustainability. And, you know, as we saw years ago, as the green movement um, began to evolve, there is a term thrown about um, called greenwashing where you know, it was kind of let's make it sound green, but the reality is eh, not so much. Um, and as uh, consumers saw through that, and it became a reality of you can be green, but you need to be green plus. You need to give me something. Don't just tell me it's green. Show it. There's all some other value within there. And we're seeing the same type of skepticism evolving related to, to sustainability conversations. Um, the first wave of sustainability, let's face it, was really more about um, cost savings between the supply within the supply chain, you know, saving gas, saving fuel, saving energy. And, and, and today what we're hearing from consumers, particularly in produce, is what's in it for me? How does this directly affect me and my family or benefit me and my family? So it's the farm-to-table journey. It's the lack of additives, the preservatives, the, the, you know, the care for the soil and the earth and the environment. Um, it's, a, it's, it's on the younger generation, it's a little bit more about the environment and the farmers. Um, on the older generations, it's a little bit more about what's in it, make sure it's good, clean, and wholesome. But the more you can directly tie it to a direct consumer benefit, 
the more likely that sustainability chapter is going to make sense. So that we believe is a big opportunity. And if you look at the uh, the, the recent uh, global summit in in Greenland, you know, it's about reforestation, um, energy reduction, and those big themes are going to be important. But again, the more produce companies can open up their farms and their facilities and their farm families um, to the consumer, um, they're going to respond to that. So sustainability conversation, we're going to see much more specific and honed in as we get into 2022. Um, and then the third one is, I think I hit on, is really this upgrade to the supermarket perimeter. You're going to be, you know, you're going to be seeing it in Delhi. Um, you're going to be seeing it um, in Bakery. You already are with Artisan Breads. Um, you, you already see it somewhat in Delhi, although we think there's another tier. And we don't believe produce has really even begun to um, uh, crack the code on that one. So that's a big opportunity. And then the fourth one is kind of an odd one, but the reality is, you know, you can build a brand brick by brick today or step by step. And what we're seeing is, you know, an emergence of not just farmer markets, but they're really community markets. Um, I know the town I live in, in, in St. Pete, Florida, um, you know, it's a Saturday morning, every week event. And it's not just, you know, some pickup trucks. It is a food fair that is everything from packaged goods to local culinary chefs and produce is right at the center of it. You know, to us, we believe farmers markets are actually an emerging segment. So as we talk about, you know, convenience stores or food service or grocery deli, um, we believe farmers markets, community markets are really an emerging, um, an emerging segment. And they're, they're, they're meeting a lot of needs of us getting back in community, us getting back experimenting and discovering food, us understanding, you know, where our food's coming from and, and, and seeing it, seeing the people who are responsible and having conversations and relationships and seeing how those farmers and producers are working with the chefs to make it glorious. So we think that's a really exciting area for produce companies to start thinking about because most of them have a regional footprint, at least initially. So they can begin targeting those begin really a conversation with the market. So yeah, I was um, going to ask about that. Yeah. How could, how would a, a large national produce company participate in a farmer's market and it be authentic? You know, it, it, it's, it's, it's like a trade show, you know, it's what you do before it, during it and after it. Um, but it's beginning to share your story in the community. Um, you know, it, it, it's, it's not the traditional, you know, uh, ad where you're, you know, you're shouting a claim or two. It's, you know, beginning to work with your local retailers, having a presence in, in social media, um, working with the food editors. You're becoming part, every, co every community has a food culture and has food thought leaders with it. And it really is connecting with those before, which starts making your presence at the market more natural, which fuels the conversation with your trading partners after. So it's, it's what anybody would do to ingratiate themselves in the community. It's maybe a little less about overtly selling 
and maybe a little bit more about just being part of the, the, the food culture within any given geography. And, you know, the big guys have a place as well as uh, the, the small folks. It, what matters most is that story. And there's still a lot of big guys with great stories and there's yeah. a lot of emerging people with great they stories. They can't have a vendor booth at a farmer's market the yeah, maybe they, maybe they grow in that REIT state too, though. But I, I got to be that would be the other thing. But yeah, if, if they if they grow in half half world away, it probably wouldn't be that. But they could be yeah. working with a local chef on bringing you know new apple ideas that happen to be sponsored by Rocket Apple, or they could be working you know because these aren't just farm stands anymore. No. I mean, they're food trucks. They're 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 cooking they're events. Yeah, they're they're. And, and and some of them they're becoming you know then the extreme of course are the you know the Aspen Food and Wine Festivals and and those more sophisticated expensive events but between Aspen and Miami which I've been to and the local uh, market uh, quite frankly the local market to me is more interesting more um, more social more fun more. <laughs> spend my whole Saturday morning, you know, in that environment, talking about food with people who love food and you happen to have sun-kissed on your business card. So, so the big players could have a role in this too, and it's actually financially worthwhile? I think it is. And I think if you just take a step back in logic right now, it's one of the reasons I'm so excited about, you know, working in the produce industry. You know, let's face it. There's a couple of things that are going to happen in this plant-based movement going into next year. Um, the first is there's going to need to be a better value proposition. You know, this, this notion of I'm going to pay an extreme premium for a plant-based something, something, when I'm walking through the produce department every day and I don't have to pay a premium, certain point, you know, that's going to align. And, and a lot of people are predicting that the, the price of plant-based needs to come down to be more competitive with what it's mimicking. So, you know, that's a, that's, that's a, you know, a huge dynamic that's going to affect the produce industry. And the second part is, just like there was in gluten, just like there was in Oak Brand 100 years ago when I started my first agency, there is going to be tremendous fallout in the plant-based category. Um, the, 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 there's, all these players cannot and will not survive. And here we go again. We sit as the original plant-based, as, the, as the, the one that doesn't need explaining. Yeah. And that's the third challenge that the plant-based category is going to face increasingly is they got some explaining to do. And there's some, you know, some of them are great stories. Some of those stories aren't so great. And so as we see this, this, this evolution and just the development of the plant-based category, and we look back on other categories that emerge, we know these things are going to be happening. What's really exciting is we're just sitting here in the produce industry saying, here we've been. This is, you know, if this is what you want, it's always been here and we can tell you what the story is. And it, it's clean, it's simple, and it, as we've learned, is very impactful. I was, I was interested, yeah, in the, in the brand building. It's, um, how do you, does it work best if you start out with a premium 
item, a premium commodity, and then build the brand? Or do you do you build the brand uh, you know, associated with organic or sustainability? I mean, it's I guess yeah, you I, a lot of different directions. What's uh, what's I, I start with the premium. The the you know starting in the premium is probably a challenge because that's somewhat. Um, pioneering a new category and 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 that's going to take you know it's probably going to take some of the more uh, some of the organizations that have uh, culturally are more marketing oriented and and so you know that that one I, I don't think I advise the client to start there um, but the simple answer to the question is go beyond the label you know too much of the industry has traditionally thought I mean, we put the little tiny label on the apple and we're you know we got a brand you, you got to go up beyond the label and add any value you can will move you down the path towards branding you know a, a colleague of mine mike cannon uh, coined this years and years ago you got to add the ing slicing dicing packaging cutting flavoring seasoning sauteing anything you can do to add value every step along the way is going to be appreciated um, by the consumer, is likely to garner a, a higher price tag, and is going to make that connection stronger and stronger over time. So the good news is we don't have to be the next box of cereal in the center aisle of the grocery store shelf, all pretty defined, ready to go. Every step along the way of adding value is going to move you along the brand love journey. And, and that can be, you know, the geographic rollout, as we talked about in farmer markets, or it can be just adding one or two zings along the way. And each one of those steps um, is going to pay dividends, we believe. How do some of these predictions um, apply to maybe a produce manager at, at retail with the way that they uh, do their point of sale materials, um, they could put like the original plant base, um, you know, above a certain section, like what kind of things, how does this apply to them? Yeah, I think um, back to our perimeter study, you know, we, we kind of learned what produce owns and it's kind of logically what we all know as it relates to the, the, the you know, uh, the wholesomeness of it as a broad moniker. Um, but it also doesn't own some things and convenience, um, taste, um, uh, intrigue, you know, they want, they want to see new. So they want to see new items. They want to see new formats. Um, but I think the big lesson for the produce industry is just like other categories, there is a place for premium brands. There's a place for everyday brands and there's a place for value brands. And that's a portfolio view from a retailer that understands they play a role in that with their brand, but by partnering with the right produce companies and brands um, and getting that assortment right, getting that range. You, you still have a lot of people who value and need that bulk. So, you know, you, you've got to go from bulk to premium added as a continuum. So how do you fill that in? Which stores need, need what and what, what mix? To me, that's a big lesson for the produce industry, the big call to action, because it's been proven out in virtually every other category. We're not talking about recreating the wheel. We're talking about looking at other categories and evolving as they have evolved. Um, and so that, to us, is a really big lesson for the produce um, department. And the other piece of it is to exactly what you're suggesting. It's, you know, share the stories. 
worry less about the, the, the price discounts and worry more about sharing the stories um, and, and for making it easy for the consumer to learn about those stories uh, because they really do matter. How do you make it easy and the consumer to learn the story? Well, um, you know, as you suggested, you've got the, you know, you've got the point of sale right there. You know, there you've got um, 90 some percent of consumers walking through that uh, department on a regular basis. And we're not suggesting, you know, make it look like a, a yard sale, but um, there's lots of opportunities for messaging. There's lots of opportunities for presentation. There's lots of opportunities for demonstration and education at the store level. Um, there's linkage, linkages to shopper marketing programs and uh, retailers communications. And the brands need to um, begin to understand how to geo-target. Um, so as they um, begin to build a relationship with a handful of retailers or a handful of retail stores, you know, they need to be able to understand, you know, this heavy consumer who we've identified paying 75, spending $75 a week. We know who they are. We know what their media consumption is. So we can start delivering our story to those folks, um, either through social media or paid media or community relationships or whatever the case can be. But it's a, you know, it is a, it is a commitment to storytelling in partnership with the retailer, but also doing some on your own. But it's not an insurmountable investment as you would have thought 20 or 30 years ago when you're building a new package goods. There is an opportunity to make an investment here and, and derive the return. As you add value, um, you should be able to derive the return on that return on that investment and continue to build it. It may take some different accounting practices and principles, but you know, the simple fact is when we make a statement through research is because we keep hearing the same darn answer over and over again. And the consistent answer we heard from these consumers is they want more. They want more brands. They want more value. They want more convenience. They want more taste. All those things I said at the beginning. So, um, you know, the produce industry, I think, is sitting really in a, in a great space right now. And we're seeing, you know, we're seeing it respond in every corner. Right. And, uh, um, and there's also a lot of new and different talent being brought into the industry to complement, you know, the traditional talent. Um, and that, that I believe is also accelerating things. Um, lots of different perspectives working together because at the end of the day, this still isn't the same as building a package good. And, and there's a lot of differences. And so understanding what we can, borrow from other categories and what we can't and where we need to plow some original soil is really the, the, the kind of the challenge of figuring out that mix for any, uh, any retailer, any brand. That was a good pun or analogy there. King of analogies. It drives my family nuts. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. Hey everyone. That wraps it up for us today. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you hear in this Tip of the Iceberg podcast, please take a moment to hit that subscribe button, rate us, and type out a quick review on whatever platform you use to listen to Tip of the Iceberg. And enjoy our earlier episodes. 
In our last two, we talked to Elad Mardix of Clarifruit on his Dole partnership for the world's first AI quality control software. And the week before, Emily Trogdon and Kurt Aiken of Amplified Ag and their Vertical Roots brand on holiday packaging at retail that does social good. And we'll have more of those great conversations from the industry each week. Thanks so much for your support. I hope you learned something useful or inspirational and have a wonderful week.